0: as users perceive personality uh, based on text, whether they realize it or not, that companies should design their off personality to be in line with their brand personality and to really take control of that rather than just leaving it to chance.
1: Hello and welcome to Conversations with Each Another, a podcast about designing for people and business. My name is Tom Cunningham, I'm a senior visual designer here with Each Another and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues, one of our UX designers, Miss Laura Nolan. Hi, Tom. And one of our principal designers, Mr. Brian Heron. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about chatbots and conversational interfaces. These are two pretty hot topics at the moment. And while a lot of people are kind of exploring these different technologies, Laura, you've just completed a master's in this very topic.
0: I have, yeah. I spent um, a year researching chatbots and how their personalities can affect user satisfaction and engagement as well. 2016, I think, was like the year of the chatbot, is when they started gaining momentum again. Um, So they were around in the early 90s, and there's a good few people kind of researching them. There's loads of different types of them but they just didn't really take off then but I think that they are starting to take off now and you can really see where their worth is uh being shown and being displayed at the moment
1: so yeah obviously back in the 90s yeah like Clippy from Microsoft that kind of thing
0: yeah uh Clippy from Microsoft is like one of the earliest ones so he was originally designed to be this chatbot who would help you and it would like learn if you were an experienced user or a novice user and was supposed to kind of tailor uh, feedback and tips and hints based on that, but the implementation of it was really, really terrible.
1: Yeah. Um, you should just pop up at every, like uh, all the worst moments. Yeah. When you're onboarding people, there's kind of a bell curve of experience. You've got people at the start who are novices. but. Most of that portion of the bell curve is taken up by people who are kind of intermediate users and then experts. So when you've got something like that, something that's jumping in your way and not being very helpful, treating you as a novice, even though you're intermediate or could be very experienced, that's a pain.
0: It is, yeah. Like, do you want to know how to write a letter? And you could be, I don't know, composing like a master's thesis or something. (laughs) So even before that, in the 1960s, um, this guy called Joseph Weisenbaum uh, created the Eliza chatbot. That was one of the very first chatbots. It was named after uh, Eliza Doolittle from the George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion. And uh, what Eliza did was it kind of parsed users' inputted text and responded to them with a question. So for example, if you were to ask Eliza, how are you today? It would write back to you and ask how you are today. So there's actually a really funny story about Joseph Weisenbaum's secretary back in 1966, who was user testing this chatbot. She went in and was chatting to it and came out of the room afterwards crying. Uh, possibly because it was like the first time anyone had ever listened to her or asked her any questions. <laughs> Even
2: though it was just rephrasing her questions back to her. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. So it wasn't really listening.
2: Well, isn't that how psychology works anyway, you know, yeah. just asking you the same questions. Well, what do you think about that?
0: <laughs> yeah. And the the implementation of Eliza was very simple as well. It's only like 200 lines of code. And um, so it just shows you that something really, really simple can be very, very effective. So after this, um, I started researching personalities and chatbots. And there was loads of studies done in the 90s about this. Um, so there is this guy called Clifford Nass, and he worked in Stanford University. And he studied the effect of users interaction with uh, personality, like computer personalities. Mm-hmm. So he said that um, a lot of computers and like text, whether you think of it or or not, it actually has some sort of personality associated to it. So it's like that hashtag on Instagram. I see faces like people see faces and associate personalities um, with anything like
1: anthropomorphizing, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. (laughs) So It's like that book, Life of Pi and the Tiger's Call, Richard Parker. Took me a few pages to actually realize he was talking about a tiger at the start of the book.
0: After that, then I did some research to see what type of personality um, users engaged with more and were more satisfied with. So I created two very different personalities for a banking task. Um, one was like a younger millennial that sent gifts back to you and used emoticons and was really informal. And then on the other side, I had a really formal chatbot. So this chatbot was kind of like a banking teller almost. It's very serious, is very to the point, and there is no kind of additional stuff within the text. No emoticons, no GIFs. So a bit less fun than the other one. And I conducted a load of research. I tested on 10 people and the results back were quite interesting. So I took two uh, types of results, qualitative and quantitative. They ended up being really, really different. So the quantitative results said that there is no difference between the two chatbots. The feedback back was that there is no difference in the time, the total time to complete the tasks. There is only a seven seconds difference between the informal and the formal chatbot. But when it came to the uh, qualitative results, there is a huge, huge difference. So what I found was that the users interacted more with the informal chatbot, talked more freely to it. They tried to engage with it a lot more. but there were more mistakes made using this chatbot um, than with the other one. Um, what kind
1: of mistakes were they? were the kind of natural language parsing kind of?
0: Exactly. Things? yeah. So they they reacted really uh, casually to the casual chatbot. So they would respond back to the chatbot using casual language, whereas with the other one, they were just like really straightforward, like, you know, complete this task with me. And then as well, I found that some users were saying that they felt like the uh, informal chatbot was like a friend. So because of that, they didn't know how to say goodbye to it. Uh, so that was really funny. Actually, one guy was like, I don't I can't close the window. <laughs> I can't say goodbye to this chatbot. It's
1: too much personality. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like the first time I used Slack. And you use the chatbot to obviously set up your profile and take you through the steps and show you the tutorials. You know, it was one of the first times I've, I've used the, an app that did that. Um, and I remember for the next couple of days, every now and again, I'd come back to chat to Slackbot. And go like, hey, you know, just to see, yeah. see if it start, would start a conversation with me. I can't remember what answer it gave back, but I was disappointed. It wasn't
2: giving me the kind of conversation I was looking for. Does that mean, Laura, that when companies are considering implementing some sort of chatbot, that there's negligible gain in developing something that's friendly, but there's higher risk and it may be more difficult to imp- implement?
0: Definitely. Yeah.
2: So what, what specifically were the tasks that you got the chatbots to do?
0: Um, So the tasks were all banking related tasks and they were tied around a scenario of going on holidays with your friends. So you have a friend who gets in touch with you and says that they've just booked an Airbnb and you're going to go to a festival with them in Spain. So the first task was to check your bank account balance to see if you have enough money to go on the holiday. The second was to transfer €500 to your friend because they've booked the Airbnb apartment. And then the third was to buy insurance for your holiday and that was done through a number of steps so the first tasks were kind of free text related there was no like yes no Mm -hmm. um but the users were prompted as to the kind of steps of the tasks and then the third one there is a couple of yes no because it had to be entered uh sequentially because um of the way it was set up, it was just kind of easier to do it that way rather than to allow them to use free text for that bit. So,
2: Laura, you mentioned that in terms of the quant results there wasn't much difference and you went into some of the detail of the qualitative results. Yeah. But in terms of people's reactions to it, do people feel differently about interacting with these things?
0: They definitely did, yeah. Um so with the informal chatbot, they were quite relaxed in interacting with it. They laughed quite a lot.
2: And in terms of the perception of how efficient things were or the perception of uh, that they wanted to interact or or rather which one was more appropriate for them to interact with?
0: There's two kind of different answers in that. So the first one I will say is that with chatbot A, the tasks were completed at the same amount of time as with chatbot B. But some users said that they felt that chatbot A uh, completing the tasks with that, it actually felt a lot quicker.
2: That was the informal one?
0: That was the informal one. Yeah. And did it? No, it actually took seven seconds longer overall.
2: So, this yeah. is kind of the
1: perception of effort or the perception
2: of time.
0: Exactly, it felt
2: different. Yeah. So, uh, I have a question around this. So, coincidentally, there was a uh, I will won't go so far as to call it a study, but there was a survey that was done by um, by a company that that deals in sort of automation uh, called Live Person, uh, and the results were it came out last week. Um, They said that uh, out of 5,000 participants, 62% preferred a friendly robot uh, overall. But there was interesting breaks down on a country by country level, which showed that uh, France and Japan in particular skewed towards wanting a more formal uh, bot. So they skewed the the general trend overall. I don't know how reliable those figures are, but it does point to uh, a consideration that do we need to be aware of of cultural issues when we're designing these things?
0: Definitely. Yeah. And I think a lot more research needs to be done on that. My research was just quite small and just tested on a group of people like locally. But I think that there's a lot more research that needs to be done, not only just for, you know, the first couple of friendly interactions, but also for longer term interactions as well. I think really friendly uh, chatbot could get really cloying after a while and users will become bored of interacting with it
2: i mean bored implies repeated and constant usage right as opposed to task oriented work right
1: talking about boredom implies you know a sense of entertainment whereas if if it's a very kind of utilitarian you want to get the chatbot to complete an interaction as quickly and as with little as little
2: effort as possible well then maybe being boring is okay Part of the issues that we're having with this idea of chatbots is that its name is leading us down a certain path to chat, when actually it's not that at all. It's uh, based around task completion for the most part. You're not, you know, using this thing so it will interrogate your feelings and you can walk out of a room crying but feeling better, right? You're using this thing for a specific purpose, and so the idea of um, considering chat in terms of conversation is possibly the wrong way to look at it. We should be looking more at the platforms that people are using to accomplish the tasks. So it's chat because it occurs in Facebook Messenger or it's chat because it occurs through Alexa and you're using your voice or linguistic commands ostensibly to to achieve your task. But it's not really to do with conversation in the way that we understand it necessarily between humans. Um, there's a temptation to look Uh, and take an almost skeuomorphic approach to it. Invent a personality, invent a a person that you're dealing with, and it may not be appropriate and it may not be the right thing to do. If you look at how games developed from the 70s, early 80s through to the 90s, you look at these text input games like uh, Zork, like the early Ultimas, and you, you look at why they changed over time because there was no clear path given to the user about what they could accomplish. It was horrendous trial and error. And those things are, in many cases, incredibly well-written or really deep games, but they're really hard to interact with unless you fully understood what was uh, capable uh, of the system. So, you know, you would be literally faced with the text box and you'd have to understand that you could, you know, look, walk forward, walk north, walk south. And these would be incredibly difficult things to, to wrap your head around at least at the beginning, until you understood the way the game was thinking or the way the game had been designed. When you look at the 90s, how that changes, you now have things like Monkey Island or Day of the Tentacle, where there's a, a set list of things you can interact with. So once you get to those graphical games, those uh, classic LucasArts adventures, you have you know uh, look, talk to, push, pull, a set of interactions and verbs that you could then link to items on the graphical display. So mm-hmm you know, use chattering teeth with clown and then hopefully something would, would happen. I think when we look at how those things are constructed, they can really inform how we design and how we think about chatbots by combining um, visual cues uh, in, for instance, Facebook Messenger uh, with the actions that we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so for example, then like decision tree chatbots are probably the way to go for the moment until users interact with them for a long time and actually know what they're doing with them.
2: Yeah, if the variables make sense, right? So it depends how big your decision tree is. At a certain point, your decision tree could be incredibly enormous, and then you might decide that actually some sort of artificial intel- intelligence or machine learning may be in a more appropriate way to go. But the brute force of a decision tree can certainly help you experiment within an hour frame before you move into something that's more complex.
0: You mentioned earlier on about uh, personalities and that kind of thing coming into games and like text design, but I think because that happens naturally, like because users perceive personality uh, based on text, whether they realize it or not, that companies should design their chatbot personality. To be in line with their brand personality and to really take control of that, rather than just leaving it to chance.
1: So obviously, if it doesn't make sense for a bank or a serious institution like that to have a kind of Disney character esque personality. Or you know, uh, it's something you've, you'd see you've seen in uh, you know interface design the last number of years, where more animation is coming into into the transitions. That there was a, a lot of people were a lot of designers were using this very kind of elastic type feel to the transitions and how things would move around. And it just it was look it was overkill for for many products. It, it doesn't need to be that in your face. So I think, as you're saying, it's, it's key to think if if, if chatbot is going to be representative of your brand, it needs to be in line with how with your tone. How does that affect trust?
0: So trust and tone is very important. I asked users what sex they believed uh, chatbot A and chatbot B to be. So. They, uh, most users said that chatbot A was female and chatbot B was male. So that was actually the way that they were designed. Then I also asked the question, which one that they trusted more? And all users said that they trusted chatbot B more. So this is kind of down to a number of different factors. There is research that shows that people trust a male voice more in certain situations. Um, but also because chatbot B was more informal, it probably seems more trustworthy because that's your like stereotypical bank clerk personality.
2: But these were written, right? So people were interpreting, you know, words or sentences and then they are enforcing a personality on them. There's not um like an explicit name on like Jenny and Paul no, or something. There right?
0: is no name, it's just chatbot A and Chatbot B. Um,
2: so chatbot B just gave kind of very
1: direct answers chatbot A, there were kind of animated GIFs and that kind of thing, smiley faces.
0: Yeah, but there is the same number of responses and they both took the same time to reply as well. So it was designed so that the only uh, variable between the two chatbots was the actual text that came back to them.
1: I remember you referring to chatbot B before people perceived it almost like you're a robot butler.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And one person thought that it was going to correct their spelling. So they're actually very careful about how they inputted text. And, you know, if they saw a mistake within the text that they're inputting, they went back and changed it. So that kind of leads back to what's important for a business to do. In that case, I think that it's really possibly better at the moment for companies to use like more formal chatbots.
1: Yeah, because if you're chatting to your friends, you don't mind if you make mistakes or you might do a bit of text speak in there, which is obviously more difficult to parse from a from a chatbot perspective
0: yeah unless you have that kind of text programmed into your chatbot
2: so if we're anthropomorphizing our chatbots with you know maybe some elements of design that you did on purpose for your research purposes right to what obligation does a company or us as designers uh, what, what obligation might we have to include some elements of diversity into the chatbots or to work against any unconscious biases that we're bringing Uh, to the chatbots themselves. Is that an important factor at the moment in design?
0: I do like the idea of like, you know, trying to remove those unconscious biases. Um, But at the same time, if it increases a user's experience, if it improves it, um, then we might have to go with it.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we don't anthropomorphize a website necessarily. We, you know, we look at the website and it's a marketing page or it's a conversion flow and we don't say, okay, that's a male conversion flow or a female conversion flow, although we might argue that it, it's tuned towards certain demographics depending on the products being sold or whatever. But we don't necessarily say that that page is male or female, but we may be doing that either consciously or unconsciously with chatbots. Um, and that's a really interesting, potentially an interesting problem for companies to look at solving Uh and maybe it's not an issue if the conversion rates work or the service rate, the cost of servicing goes down, then you know maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, but it is something to be aware of, I think, when we approach these things, that we whatever we as designers are bringing to the party is likely to be represented in the finished tool.
1: So for your company, where do you start with chatbots?
2: We are at an early stage in the implementation of these things. Now, when we talk about chatbots, That's only one small piece of the puzzle. There's also better ways to have omni-channel conversations, you know, across Facebook, across text message and bring those in to what a company can understand about the customer. So it's not just about chatbots. It's about ways that companies can start to interact on the platforms that people expect them to be in and to be a little more present uh, when customers need them. So for companies to implement these things, they have to make some really concrete choices. And it's probably the wrong thing to say we are now a 100% conversational company and we're going to be on every single platform because the cost of implementing that is enormous and the risk of getting it wrong is huge as well. Um, you know, there's minor things like conversion, you know, conversion can dip slightly and then come back up, but there's huge potential for brand damage as well if things uh, go off key in a way that's unpredictable. And we've seen some of those things recently with Google, for instance, and in the answers that it's giving to tough questions on um, in the political sphere. So I think companies have to look carefully at what users are experiencing currently and then target areas where chatbots or a conversation may help solve particular problems and be quite focused in what they're trying to achieve. When you're looking at user journey, there's probably three factors you want to consider to see where uh, chatbots could be implemented or a conversational interface of some sort. First of all, you want to some, uh, want something that is uh, technically appropriate, something that uh, the chatbot is going to suit doing. Second, you want to look at something that can bring really good business value, but is also feasible to implement. So something that's going to give you a really good ROI. And then finally, you want to uh, deliver something that is going to be really valuable for your customers, something that is actually useful. Um, and one of the examples uh, that we were looking at recently was the idea of uh, online purchasing for meat, uh, an online retail store. And the idea is that it's very hard for people to purchase expensive meat online. So your rib roast or your leg of lamb, because it's very hard for you to judge the things you're getting. So that's a place where it's technically appropriate, right? The task you're trying to do is routine. Um, it's uh, something that might happen quite a lot. And there's variables, but the variables are fairly specific. How much meat do you want? Uh, what's the cooking time? Some things there that can really help customers um, in their purchase. It's achievable as an ROI. It's fairly feasible to do. You could have a team of butchering specialists somewhere uh, helping out like an entire uh, chain of supermarkets and business value right because uh, you know it's a fresh product it's fairly expensive the margins are high and if you can start selling that stuff online that's going to hit your bottom line and finally customers are going to find it really useful so uh, instead of having to do most of your shopping online but then this one special piece of meat that you're cooking for your Sunday roast that you have to go down to the store for you can actually complete that online straight away the barriers for actual sale are reduced so as a customer you're going to get everything delivered on the Friday afternoon that you need to so it becomes a a, a really useful thing. So those are sort of the three criteria that you're looking for. When you want to experiment with these with these tools, something that's technically appropriate, something that has a good ROI and something that customers are going to find really useful. Because with the meat, you're not just thinking about weight, you're thinking about portions. The buying habit that you have in the store is that you poke around, you look for something that's about right and in your mind, you're looking at, uh, let's say, the leg of lamb and you're saying, OK, well, that's one portion, that's two portion. And then there's the bit that's left over for sandwiches the next day. Um, online, you don't have the facility to do that because you're not looking at the piece of meat that you're buying. You're looking at um, a piece of meat that probably has a weight counter attached to it, like, you know, 500 grams, one kilo. And that's a really difficult thing for people to judge because no one knows how much kilos you need to feed a family, really, because we're we're sort of divorced from the product in that way.
0: Yeah, I actually had that experience a couple of months ago where I was like cooking something for a couple of friends and i ended up having to go to a different website to find out how much meat like by weight that i needed to feed these like five friends that were coming over so it's a really really valuable thing to actually have that inbuilt within the site and to not have to go out of the site and then go back into it
2: yeah and the thing is it's really hard to do that through a normal interface uh with variables you know you could switch from weight to portions but there's no um, wiggle room there if if a site moves to portion counters right you know so four portions of sausages who's to say what a portion is is it large is it small is a family big eaters are they not big eaters so by using these sort of interfaces that have a huge amount of variables you mentioned a decision tree earlier right you can program a lot of these questions out that will help make informed choices you do it on the site you keep the uh, user in a buying environment and it solves the problem that they have, which is ultimately you know, not having to go to the shops and just have all my stuff delivered ready for for Sunday for me to cook. So when you are looking at your journey, you may think, OK, we want chatbots in our store or our chain of stores. Maybe there's ways of looking in a much narrower way to experiment with something that's going to deliver real value for the business, but something that we can also implement and something that customers are going to find valuable.
0: And then probably in the future, gather all those chatbots together and just have an entire chatbot experience for online shopping.
2: Yeah, the key thing is is like when you when you implement these things at first, you have to view them as learning experiences. And we don't think that learning experiences should be you know that Silicon Valley failure is good, right? We don't we don't think it should be that. What it should be is about trying a way to implement things that you think is going to provide really great value, um, and then you can uh, learn from those experiences and build it out. So you're exactly right. Like you start off with one area where you think you're going to get that great bang for book, and where customers are going to be really impressed with. But then you start to build it out to ask, okay, now we've got this working well. Where else in this user journey can we apply these lessons? And as you start to understand how the whole system should work, you can you can build it into something that is uh, consistent and clear for the user.
1: Finding ways to add shortcuts and hand-holding throughout your, your whole customer journey.
2: I mean, well, the critical point is to uh, find the key places to experiment first, to limit your investment to things you're pretty sure are going to work and to solve a problem. I mean, what you don't want is to develop an expensive chatbot that doesn't have any You know, reason to exist Mm -hmm. Um, and at the end what have you really learned that the implementation didn't work or that there was no point in implementing it in the first place so you want to tackle or attempt to tackle a real problem because that's the only way that you're going to learn whether your approach to implementation is going to be successful or not in the long term
0: On that note I I think that we're still kind of waiting for like a really useful or sticky chatbot to come around I don't think anyone's cracked it yet there's a lot of talk about uh, when payment becomes uh, integrated into chatbots that so that's when they're going to show their like big success when they're going to be really successful but it hasn't happened yet but it is on the way and i think when that does happen then the momentum of chatbots will kind of start kicking up again
2: yeah i agree to some extent i think what we're seeing is really effective use of this style of interaction in some areas tom uh, was talking before about the onboarding in slack and i think onboarding in particular is a brilliant way to uh, to introduce these products uh, you know people hate wizards and um overlays or whatever the modals that go through the page to show you how how it works whereas uh you know chatbots can be a really effective way of introducing complex pieces of software or complex apps really quickly or just in time, explicit interactions, just when you need to know about them. And, you know, we see really interesting implementations of it in sales flows at the moment, which are also really powerful, uh, that are either fully automated or partially automated. And I think that when you look at servicing and how Intercom is implemented conversational interfaces and how they relate directly to uh, sales teams and uh, service teams within organizations. So I think that we're, we're seeing parts of this puzzle come together. And I'm not sure that it has to be more than parts of a puzzle, to be honest, because Because what these things are useful for is attacking specific problems. So I'm not sure that it needs to be, you know, an all singing, all dancing, comprehensive, uh, fully automated chat interface all the time. I think that there are things that this will be really good for and it can be you know things that are nudging reminders it can be helping you take things to the next step one thing for instance that um websites are really bad at is creating a timeline for you to do stuff right so if you are purchasing particularly grudge purchases uh that aren't time bound like pensions or life insurance uh you know uh some of those things that we we probably should do but we often don't we might visit a website we do a bit of research and then we we trundle off and we come back to it four years later. Uh, when you look at these conversational interfaces, what they can be good at is like uh, starting to set timelines for conversion at the point of interest, right? So you outsource all of your decision making and all of the "I should be doing this" to the chatbot, which can then you know take when, when is a good time for you to do this. It can look you start on the website. It takes your details and information or you sign in with Facebook. And then in a couple of days time, it contacts you by Facebook. You can do some of your initial sort of data gathering through Facebook. You can you know, go off and do some automated stuff in the background. But it means that it's taking control over the sales funnel. And that can be a really it could be a really powerful thing. So I'm not sure that it's about joining all of these things up into something that's completely cohesive as an end-to-end experience, I think it's rather that it's solving certain problems in the journey for, that are for either the user or for the business. You know, when we, we've we been talking about chatbots as a way primarily for people to interact with a product or service or a company in some way, I think... What becomes interesting when you combine it with context, you know when you have a phone that starts to understand where you are what you 're doing, and it can be combined into a a service I think that 's when this idea of chat becomes really important and really interesting K l m have a fantastic idea for it i 've never seen the implementation myself, but as flights get delayed, for instance, it will let you know on Facebook. Um, it will issue your boarding card uh, and uh, on Facebook as well. Whether that's really useful, I'm not sure, but the idea of tools that can help guide you through a service or process that's happening in a number of stages over time. Um, you can do things like change your seat on it as well, uh, which is great. Uh, and but I think we're at the early stages of it but when you combine the context and the power of what your phone knows about you with what companies can deliver for you I think it, there's a lot of ground to be made there
1: So before people go out and start jumping into coding up chatbots for their own businesses what should they think about?
0: Um, well first you should probably think about is it useful? Is it going to give your customers any value? You should possibly think about aligning your brand personality with the chatbot personality and Just implement kind of smaller chatbots, smaller interactions, test on those, see what works, see what doesn't work and go back and revisit it. And I think there's also a lot of future uh, research which should take place about, you know, when should chatbots hand over to humans? So kind of like context driven chatbots, you know, the chatbot should be able to pick up on when the user is annoyed if they have a complaint or if there is something that the chatbot can't answer, then it should be passed over to a human. And there's also kind of longer term engagements as well. So to see if that kind of personality kind of grates over time, if it works, if it doesn't work for the user.
1: Great. Thanks very much for your time today, guys. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Till next time. For more insights, check out our website, eachanother.com and subscribe to the Conversations with Each Another on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already. Feel free to rate and review us. Thanks.